sound speed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Croce, and this podcast has been brought to you by HPA Net. For anyone that missed the first episode and are not aware of what the HPA is, the HPA is a non-profit member association that connects businesses and individuals. There are several committees, all led by high-end professionals, dedicating their time for the betterment of the industry. I have to admit, this is the biggest thing that attracted me to this organization. All the people leading it are all experts in their field, putting in time because they believe in the cause, which is all about education, information sharing, recognition, and building a community. They host what is, in my opinion, the most coveted stage for presenting new technology and workflow processes for our industry, which is the Tech Retreat. This is a really cool event if you haven't heard of it. Many of the top technologists, post-production facilities, vendors, and studios all get together in the desert to educate everyone on their latest workflows. The HPA has many online virtual education opportunities happening right now with everyone stuck at home. If you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend going on to hpaonline.com and within the net section, there's a link to a recording of a recent cloud workflow webinar, which was a spin-off from the Tech Retreat Super Session. This was a really awesome webinar with many talented people talking about working on a short film all through the cloud using software that connected to media that was all hosted centralized in the cloud. Now, without further ado, here with me today are two guests, Ty Logston and Chad Peter. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. All right. So for everyone tuning in, we're here today to talk about reframing and post. But before we get into what that actually means, let's start by giving you some more insight as to who Chad and Ty are. Chad's current title is VFX Supervisor, where he spends time both on set and in post-production. He's also had an additional director credit for second units and has worked on some pretty amazing jobs like Gone Girl, Mindhunter, House of Cards, Birdman, Revenant, a pretty stacked resume to say the least. And we've also got Ty with us today, coming from a background of about 10 years in reality TV as a story producer with Rally TV, and he's now taking on the role of VFX Workflow Manager. And in this role, Ty's worked on Homecoming and Mr. Robot, both of which dealt with reframing and post that you'll hear more about during this podcast. To kick things off, Chad, why don't you start by giving everyone an introduction as to what I'm actually talking about big picture when I say reframing and post? And maybe you have a different term for it than reframing and post, I'm not sure. We've traditionally referred to it as like the stabilization pipeline, which is not necessarily accurate, but uh, it's just, it's a pipeline that kind of allows for us to shoot more padding around the edge of the image. And then if we want to, we can either stabilize the image or reframe it in post. It's something that I can't imagine working without these days after having been with this workflow for about five, six years. I always try to talk people into using it. It is definitely a style and it's not something that people necessarily have to use or, or even should use. It, it kind of allows you to build this incredible um, workflow that just can open you up to all these new resources you didn't even know existed. Now, I've worked on a lot of jobs that had, you know, a 5% punch in for the frame or somewhere like that, you know, as long as we're shooting on, you know, a, a resolution that's slightly larger than what we're delivering. Mm -hmm. A lot of the jobs I work on have that kind of an extra little wiggle room. But 
we're talking about something a little bit more serious than what I'm talking about, where I'm just saying, oh yeah, we did a 5% punch in, and then we did a 240 mat or whatever it may have been. You're talking about a bigger safety net, right? Yeah, I mean, we get upwards of 15%, uh, if not more sometimes, depending on what's happening. Uh, <laughs> it's constantly changing. Sometimes I'd have to kind of argue for more in some cases, but... Uh... <laughs> Interesting. To what extent are we talking about? Are we talking about, as an example, repositioning the frame to have a slight punch in? Or are you actually also creating camera moves that weren't done on set? Uh, no, we're absolutely creating camera moves that were not done on set. In, in some cases. Uh, in the case of Mr. Robot, not so much because it's just not the same style as, say, Mindhunter or House of Cards which I would call like Fincher camera, camera moves are, are so different than, say, Sam Esmail of Mr. Robot camera moves. So on those ones, though, you were actually creating some, like recreating a dolly move that wasn't necessarily there or something like that? Uh, well, dolly moves we can't recreate just because that's kind of traveling in a 3D space. Sure. Um, but as far as like locked off shots, you know, if we wanted to add, you know, tilt ups, tilt downs or pan left and right, based on how the, the character's moving in the frame, let's say. Let's say on set, the camera operator didn't quite tilt up it fast enough, and the character's head left the frame for a split second. As long as we have it in the padding, we can certainly reanimate the image so that it looks like the camera operator was spot on and kept the head in frame. So in that situation, or you know, a situation where they maybe didn't pan, or they didn't tilt, but you do that, is the DP involved in that decision or is the director or who's at the table that says that that's okay to do? Well, typically we wouldn't usually do that on say Mr. Robot, which so the DP is Todd Campbell. Okay. And his style and Sam Esmail's style is a little different where we don't really take that liberty to do that. I see. If it's suggested, it's usually an editorial decision where the editor and the director will be there and they'll say, okay, can we fix this move or can we, stay with this character so that they don't leave frame or push them off to the side of the frame, you know, depending on how the edit works. In the case of David Fincher, it's it's definitely where David's saying, okay, I want to tilt up with his head. And after a while of doing that for a few seasons of, you know, House of Cards and into Mindhunter, it definitely, you get a feel for what the camera moves are. I feel like I've taken a, a master class in, in uh, David Fincher framing. But it doesn't it doesn't work with everybody. And as far as like the DPs that work with Fincher versus you know Todd Campbell with Sam Esmail, I think um, the DPs with Fincher are very used to understanding what the process is and and how the post manipulation is basically all a part of the same process. I see. That's interesting. So they know that going into the job that that's going to be part of the the workflow. Yeah. I see. The padding actually. I think was a benefit as well in the fact that there's a lot of times Sam came in and wanted to see what also existed in the padding. If he could punch out even further and then, I mean, it does screw with our stabilization work a little bit, but we would try to go even further to give him more, I guess, and then just keep the stabilization to a minimum. Interesting. Yeah, because we had talked about being able to punch in and then do the stabilization work, but never really the opposite where you pull out. So I'm curious, what was the first job that you've seen this happen on or that you were a part of that did this? I can't really talk outside of the productions I've been a part of, but the first one that I'm aware of would have been probably either Benjamin Button or Social Network. 
and it, it was developed, I believe, by an old roommate of mine and currently an editor, Tyler Nelson. And he, at the time, I think he was an assistant editor, and he was tasked with kind of developing this workflow where they could they could stabilize or they could reframe the image as David Fincher wanted it on the movies. And so he had to kind of figure out a way to make this workflow work in-house almost because a lot of the times David Fincher that night, like he'd say, okay, I want this shot stabilized tonight. Uh, and can I see it tomorrow? <laughs> and Tyler... Tyler always wanting to say yes and be like, yeah, I'll totally, I'll figure it out. Even if he didn't necessarily know what he was was doing that day, he would have to figure it out that night and show up the next day with something. So it was kind of developed in that era of time. I think it was really social network where it, it really started to kind of take hold. And then definitely by Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, they had really implemented it. And then it really got refined during House of Cards a bit later on. Hmm. Okay. And... On Mr. Robot, this was actually delivered in HD, but was the decision to shoot in 8K, did that have anything to do with this? I assume that, I mean, obviously that's a giant resolution difference. <laughs> uh, surprisingly not, actually. That was a more choice of Todd Campbell, the DP. He had shot the same camera, the uh, Panavision DXL2 mm-hmm. uh, on Homecoming, and just he was really pleased with the colors and the, you know, the that came out of the camera and he was really happy with just playing around with that, that monstro sized sensor, mm-hmm. um, especially on uh, Mr. Robot, just because they hadn't done that the previous three seasons of uh, Mr. Robot. They had a, an older, I believe they shot all seasons on a red. It was more for color for Todd's case. I see. And I'd worked with Todd twice now, first on homecoming uh, season one, which he was a little less lenient on how much padding I, I could ask for. It was I, it was kind of a give and take. I had to kind of get to know him first <laughs> before he trusted me, and he had to see how it turned out. So it's not always, you know, I, it's not like I can just waltz in there and be like, hey, can we get this much padding? And they'll say, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a little bit of time. So would would there be certain times when you're on set, you see that a certain camera move is happening, you're thinking, you know what, this might be one of those shots that we want some extra padding, so that we can try to make this even smoother in post, you talk to the DP in that situation and say, you know what, can you frame wide? Is that essentially what you'd say? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we At the beginning of the season, we tried to basically pick a percentage of padding, which I, I believe was 15% on, on season four of Mr. Robot. And then in some cases, you know, if it's like a lock-off or – there was a lot of times where Sam likes to shoot from above looking down like bird's eye and you just can't get the camera far enough back into the ceilings of these uh, lower, the lower ceilings on like New York sound stages. And so you can't really have that much padding when you're trying to get a, as wide an image as you possibly can. So sometimes in those cases we drop the padding down to like 2%, let's say. Hmm. It was kind of a give and take on certain things. It was important to stick with one standard, though, because uh, especially when we're trying to fly through hundreds of shots per week in post, we need to know you know, what the native framing is supposed to be. Hundreds of shots per week. <laughs> it, it got, I mean, Ty can certainly speak to how, how crazy it would get <laughs> towards the end. No, it, yeah, we were definitely uh, working long hours the last several weeks. I think uh, one episode we had somewhere around 500 plus to work on. 
Something like that, yeah. <laughs> wow. Huh. So for everyone tuning in, I think something important to mention is that usually the shots that are turned over for visual effects through a visual effects pull workflow, I'll call it, the percentage of shots that are in the cut, I guess it depends on the show if it's a really VFX heavy show, but it's not that much compared to what are we talking about here? I remember hearing a number like 95% or essentially anything that wasn't locked off. Is that accurate-ish? Pretty much. I mean, even some locked off shots, we'd have to like review to see if there was any kind of movement to the shot. But I would say the majority, we were either between 80 to 95% of the entire show was touched by the visual effects department. Holy cow. Gotcha. That's uh, that's that's a lot. It would get insane, and that was a lot of the reason why we had to have like an in-house team to be able to handle that. Just the turnaround, and it has to be so fast. Mm -hmm. Now that we have a rough understanding of what you're trying to achieve and why, I guess let's now get into how you actually did it. So, while the editor, as an example, is working on the cut, how was the decision made as to which shots are going to get treated? Was the editor calling you in and being like, hey, I think this needs a reframe or this or that? Like, I don't understand how the process was for choosing which shots are chosen to get pulled for this work. Well, for the most part, we would have to wait till the cut was pretty far into the process. We'd almost have to wait for Sam's director's cut before we would actually start to actually review the entire episode and then select what was going to be worked on. But we knew our schedule was going to be intense. In the beginning, uh, we would try to flag what we felt like wouldn't be a scene that would be probably touched as much. And we would try to work on those ahead of time, hoping that the majority would stay. And if we had to redo the work on others, we just would. Yeah, I'll I'll take that one step further even in saying that uh, on shows like Mindhunter, you know, or any Fincher project, we would literally pull everything, even the lock-offs, because a lot of cases, you know, you, you have like very just slight movements, uh, little bumps just from, say, you know, a camera operator sitting on a dolly. You could feel their heartbeat hmm. bumping the image a little bit when you're, you know, looking at sub-pixels. Of course, to like, most people's eyes, they would never see that, but, uh, you know, you get somebody like Fincher or, you know, after a few years of me staring at pixels, even the slightest bump kind of sets you off. So you end up doing everything. You, know, you could argue whether or not that's great use of your time or not, but um, I'd s still put that amount down to like 10% of those shots are kind of in that realm. I see. And then the rest are usually like moving shots. And those we don't even have to ask about those, like whether or not we're going to do it. The answer is always yes, it's going to be done. I see. Okay. So then at that point, and it's just like on any other job where an avid sequence gets put together with the shots that are going to need to be pulled and, and then an EDL is turned over. Yeah, typically. And then uh, that would be given to like Ty. Okay. And Ty would kind of take it from there. I see. And one of the great things that we were able to... Um... Because a lot of the beginning, we were trying to figure out how to make this a smooth process. So there was a little bit of trial and error on the first couple episodes of season four. Um, but we finally got it down to a process, which thanks to Metabank reading the markers, we were able to kind of uh, get into a naming process where we would be able to quickly generate out our VFX, which would generally be worked on first. And then uh, everything that was for stabilization would have a different number coding. And that was just easy to read and then distribute out to who needed to do what work. I see. 
And so I, why don't I touch on that a little bit just in regards to the media being online and maybe you can touch on why this is so important. But so that everybody knows, the entire nag for this one was kept online. So Ty would log in through the web UI and upload an EDL and go through choosing, I want this many handles, I want this for my starting frame, and I want it to go to this particular vendor or in-house and hit submit, and it would render and provide a download link for him. But I think the main takeaway here is that everything was online. Yes. Yeah, I'll let Chad speak on to the difference between uh, just going from homecoming into Mr. Robot for the change on this. Going going back further from that into House of Cards, which basically we housed all the footage in-house. And we had Tyler Nelson and uh, I think eventually with the help of Billy Peak, they designed this, this whole internal system to be able to pull from the R3Ds. And just anytime they needed to drop an EDL in, it would transcode the DPX that we would need. And then from there, you know, we divvy it out to the in-house visual effects artists or the out-of-house vendors. So that was kind of the system I was used to working in. And then um, Sam Esmail had reached out to our team just to see who did their post-reframing. And that's how I jumped over to his show. And he was working on Mr. Mr. Robot Season 3 at the time, which didn't have this whole workflow. It was done very traditionally. All VFX shots were done out of house. There was no stabilization pipeline, and they brought me in halfway through post to implement one, but they hadn't shot for it. They didn't have any padding on the outside of the image. Visual effects had already been done and cropped to a center crop and sent back and cut together, and they still wanted to stabilize on top of it, which meant I was looking at the possibility of stabilizing you know, sub-HD at that point because I have to punch in to be able to pull this off. And I kind of brought up the argument of we need to do this properly if you guys want to do this on the next show. And the next show was was Homecoming. And we'd really hoped to implement the codebook that Tyler and Billy had done at Fincher's, but we weren't able to get it. So Homecoming, we kind of had to scrape and poor Ty. <laughs> Ty kind of got thrown over the, the fire and he had to basically hand manually pull everything. So fortunately, when Mr. Robot Season 4 came around, we were able to use MetaBank to basically just pull shots from the cloud. Well, as you were saying, we'd submit, you know, he would submit the EDL, and it changed our lives in terms of, especially ties, having to, having to keep our workflow pumping. Yeah, I would, I would say the same. I'm not sure how many days, but, I mean, it definitely added up. I think this is really going to be start becoming a lot more normal now that keeping the entire negative online is a lot more affordable. But I think that the change that's currently happening is that this used to be really expensive and keeping the entire neg on a cloud was hard to justify. And I think now it's starting to become a lot more affordable so that you don't have to be some giant tentpole movie to be able to utilize something yeah. like that. Uh, that was a huge concern of ours, just the, the cost of space maintaining all those r3ds is not easy yeah when you're shooting 8k especially <laughs> <laughs> to do that in-house without you know relying on lto tapes constantly and just hard drive space in general yeah and in situations like this you don't want to be pulling from tapes because you have to have a human there with an auto loader to actually do such a thing right now and with everybody stuck at home obviously that's not ideal <laughs> 
Okay, so you had explained what happened on Homecoming in that VFX shots would get worked on by the vendor, then you'd get them, then you'd stabilize them. But I'm just wondering, did it work the opposite way on this project where you would pull the plate, it would get stabilized, and then it would go to them? Or was it still the opposite way except they'd return a higher resolution and you had more padding to work with? No, we actually, we we sent the shot to them unstabilized. And then we would let them do the work on that shot uh, and then... Basically, when they sent it back, that just it came back the exact same way we sent it to them. Uh, nothing was center cropped or anything like that. And then we applied the stabilization work to the shot. And a lot of the times, what we would do, because the it's the same file, is we would hand the exact same file to the stabilization artist. He would go ahead, stabilize, and then just be able to apply that data by replacing with what came back from the VFX vendor. I see. And so that interchange between you guys was DPX frames, I assume, right? Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. And then for the shots that didn't go to VFX vendors and they were just stabilized or had this kind of treatment that we're talking about and cleaned up with that, like a VFX shot, get dropped back into the offline? Uh, Yeah. So yeah, we would actually do all the work in-house and then we would generate basically the DPX sequence that would uh, be set aside to go to uh, our online facility. And then we generated an offline file that we center cropped ourselves in-house. And then we applied the CDL and LUT information to that offline file. So this way they had an idea of what it kind of looked like going into the online. I see. Interesting. So at that point, it's essentially a new master. But at that point, a lot of the online is to these files and not necessarily back to the R3Ds, interestingly enough. Yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> we would usually uh, pretty much just go straight into DPX. I see. And was that a big reason why you wanted all the debayering done by one company instead of kind of splitting it between a few different places? Because I remember that being a thing. I can't speak directly to that. I remember Daniel Rentis, our post supervisor, had uh, had dealt with that because we were, you know, obviously it was Sam was a daily's house, but Photochem was finishing house. And so there was a bit of a jump there in trying to maintain color from onset through this whole pipeline into you know what the colorist is seeing. Yeah, I've always said honestly, even when, because I I'm a part of the finishing workflows at Sim as well, and I I'm really a firm believer in the fact that any I know that we're kind of splitting between talking about VFX pulls versus the consolidation and render of media for the online. But when it comes to the VFX pull side of things, I really think it makes a lot of sense to have the dailies company doing it. And I would, again, I would say that even if we were only doing the finishing in another company to dailies, because there's so many things that change and there's little like, oh, we pulled out a phantom camera and in this situation we did this. And oh, on this particular day, we actually used a different process. And trying to keep up with that, (laughs) if you didn't do the dailies is so hard. Compared to, can I try to match the debayer specs? Matching debayer specs is pretty simple and can be handed off in an email. Mm-hmm. But trying to keep a handle on what happened dailies color-wise, and quite frankly, if you know the other company had done the VFX pulls, if there was a problem, who are you going to call? You're going to call the dailies facility. You're not going to talk to the to the other company that did the pull when there's a problem with color matching when you get back to the offline. Right. So why don't you just have them do it in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but then you know you've also got uh, like Minehunter, Fincher basically uh, they have an in-house colorist who is constantly onlining from day one, hmm. and, and they're they're tweaking the color as they go on a DaVinci in-house. Really, 
and so it's like coming from that world where you have a director who can demand that kind of thing and, and achieve it uh, out of their success versus stepping outside and trying to maintain this workflow for revolving door directors is really difficult because typically, you know, you're not going to find post-producer who's going to want to set it up, um, who's going to maintain the same job for year after year. Usually it's, you know, it's when you get outside into other shows, it, it's not necessarily a possibility for a lot of these shows, which is unfortunate, but it's also just the reality of, you know, continuity of maintaining everything that happens in this workflow. Yeah, well, that's amazing. If you can keep up with essentially a running conform throughout the job, that's really cool. And so you obviously have done a few of these where you've had this this stabilization process. Is this something that you see more jobs taking on? Because what's funny is I had never heard of this until we worked on Mr. Robot together. And since then, I've had two other jobs that had asked to do this. It's interesting that I actually, when I'm watching shows now, I kind of, it's getting harder and harder for me to tell if they've tried to stabilize something. Just because the style is, is so unique, once you start doing it for a while, you can almost, I can almost always point out a shot that's been stabilized. Uh, if it's been done poorly, which I've seen, I saw some bad stabilizations even in Mr. Robot Season 1, <laughs> which I wasn't even <laughs> on. <laughs> but it's getting harder and harder to tell. I think, uh, I don't know this, but I think that they're doing it on Ozark just from watching the show. Um, I feel like there's some sort of process going on there. Interesting. So it's kind of like a little game to sit back and watch and wonder <laughs> who's doing it and who isn't. I see. And when, when you guys are doing this, are you doing it in Nuke? Is that the application you're using? No, we're in After Effects completely. Uh, oh. we're, we're Adobe based outside of um, the Avid. I see. And this was the big reason that you brought the in-house team in. It wasn't like you were also doing other visual effects work in-house that you happened to tack this onto. This was one of the bigger reasons you had that in-house team. Yeah, we had to have, uh, especially for Mr. Robot, where turning around, initially it was supposed to be 12 episodes and it became 13 episodes. And just the amount of shots that we had to do you know, we had to have a full-time stabilization artist. We had to have uh, a full-time senior compositor. Um, and then you've, you've got myself, I, who, even though I supervised, I still had to do visual effects work just to pull it off because we're still trying to finish on time on budget. And we can't, the, one of the things is if you're going to commit to in-house, you really have to commit to it, which means you can't necessarily send that much out to vendors uh, either because you are spending so much money in-house so there's trade-offs to it for sure and then you know like ty is also doing he's ingesting all the edls from the editors he's working with the editors to sit down and make sure that shots are pulled and then he's you know when he's got free time he's also doing stabilizations uh, on the side so oh really it's hard because we ha we have to yeah we have to train everybody to be able to, to understand the process and of you know how to stabilize using the method that we're used to i see yeah and this is also while also still prepping <clears throat> and sending out shots to uh vfx vendors for shots that we can't take on in-house as well so hmm. and i have a question for you uh you know there's not too many jobs that i work on that have after effects as the main tool being used 
And in regards to importing CDLs, like .ccc files or whatever it may be that you're receiving, are those able to be automatically imported and applied or are you copying and pasting the values in? Because I've heard from a couple of people that they had to copy and paste. And I, and I work with a lot of new artists and that's never been a thing. And I don't know After Effects as well. Uh, we Yeah, we unfortunately, we typically have to do that. Um, mm. We might have had more time. Uh, if, if we had had more time, uh, Christopher, our lead compositors, you know, is scripting wizard and he would half the time, he'd just sit sit down and, an hour later, he'd come back with a, a script that would just automate <laughs> putting all these things together for us. Doesn't it seem odd, though, that it couldn't just import a CDL? It seems it's a pretty simple file, XML. You, you, know, I you don't... think so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, um, you know, sometimes uh, working with Adobe, we make a lot of requests, and, and they have it on their list, but their list of things to do is so, so large that sometimes they don't get to it in time. But I would certainly hope so in the future. We've talked about using Nuke in the past on other shows, but as far as how our workflow is set up, this was just the easiest way to go through. And unfortunately, that meant some manual processing, which yeah. uh, each artist had to do at the end of the day. I see. But I guess as long as that's turned over to you per shot and you don't have to go digging for it, that makes it easier. Yes, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and to go a little deeper into the stabilization workflow too, like we're we call it stabilization, but I've never really been happy with that label. Well, I mean, what we're really doing is tracking each image and reanimating it. So we're we're controlling the new motion of the camera, and like kind of like what we were talking about before. At least we're trying to recreate what the camera operator or DP had initially wanted. We're just cleaning up the so-called the human element of it, unfortunately. Which is sometimes, you know, like you were asking about, you know, the DP, like, is that almost unethical to do that? Uh, I remember when Tyler and I uh, were stabilizing Birdman, I had to go, <laughs> I had to go drive across town and sit in with Alejandro Inaratu to basically plead with him and, and explain to him we weren't stripping the humanity out of his movie. <laughs> um, that's interesting because it was it was his dp chivo who had asked to implement some of these methods in some shots and so it was kind of like me being a wedge in between that and trying to argue our case to a director who you know loves handheld loves what it gives them and uh you know trying to find a way to take the stabilization and make it feel human while stripping away those those like micro jitters or something that you know exactly kind of take your take your attention away very cool well thank you very much guys for joining us on the hpas through the frame and sharing your wisdom and knowledge very much appreciated well thank you so much for having us of course sure thing thank you so for everyone tuning in again we've been talking a lot about it but if you haven't seen ty and chad's handiwork on any of these jobs definitely check it out and of course, thank you everyone very much for joining us as well. Your support is very much appreciated. I'll do my best to keep cranking these podcasts out, even while I don't have access to our studio and have to do them from my home. <laughs> and just a reminder for anyone that are new to what the HPA is, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. There are many virtual events going on right now, providing content and education for everyone stuck at home. Again, that's hpaonline.com. Keep an eye on social media for the reveal of what our next episode will be focused on, as well as who my next guest will be. 
Until then, that's a wrap. Thank you.